Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance." Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there's a lot going on in this text, and it's going to end in this moment where he says that we need to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend the least amount of time about the thing that might be one of the most important pieces on this because it's something that nobody wants to talk about. We're going to talk about it. We're just going to talk about it at the end, and we're going to say the least amount about it. And that's because it's the word patience. You know what patience is. I know what patience is. We know what it means to have patience, yet none of us want to talk about it. None of us want to deal with it. So we'll talk about it a little and we'll deal with it a little on the back end. Is that a deal? All right. But really, the front side isn't a whole lot more um, encouraging. But the middle's pretty awesome. So we're going to labor through the beginning. We're going to enjoy the middle. And then we're going to bring it home to a finale of patience at the end. How does that sound? Like a great Sunday? All right, let's do this. So he talks at the beginning about not laying again the foundation, and he's talking about things that we really talked about last week, about how there were those elements of worship that were going to be made better for the new covenant. And so since he was going to explain them later, he's kind of just passing through it now. We just jumped into it at the beginning, and we worked our way from chapter 9 to chapter 6, and then we're going to end in chapter 11. The reason why we do that is he was talking to people who already knew some things so he could skip over them or get to them later, but I wanted to make sure that when he said something about not laying again the doctrines of Christ, that we knew exactly what that was, so we covered it last week. Now, this week, he moves on and he says, so let's move on to maturity. 
And the first thing that he gives as an example of maturity is that we need to have the understanding that based on all of the work that Jesus did that calls us into a relationship with him, a continual relationship, where if we neglect that relationship, it is actually possible to fall. Now, I know that there are conversations and there are even uh, denominations. You may have even come from a particular faith group that does not believe that it's possible for you to fall from your faith. But we see very clearly that that would be an immature view because a mature view of faith, he says right out of the gate, must accept that it is possible to fall. So I do want to deal with that for just a minute because uh, sometimes that's one that we can get a little cranky about. So let's just hit really hard right out of the gate. Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So the conversation typically and correctly is that God is love. God loves people. God is love. God does love people. God loves you, God loves me, God loves sinners, God loves people who hate him, God loves everyone. For everyone whom God loves, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God loves, yes. God is love, yes. God is also just. Note then the kindness of God Note then also the severity of God. Kindness to those who continue in his kindness, but severity to those who have fallen. And he says, pay attention to those who have fallen. And if you've noticed they've been cut off, take note, because if you fall, then you get cut off too. And I know we don't like threatening language, and I know we don't like consequential language, especially in 2023, but our interpretation is not allowed to change the meaning of the gospel. The gospel stands. The truth of the word of God stands. And so it has been clearly stated what that gospel is. That if you remain in his kindness, it's a good place. But, but if you fall, then you will experience the severity of God. Now, what can sometimes be a little bit um, jarring is when he says, if you've fallen, there remains no more sacrifice for you. And what they're saying is, if you, if you remain in a fallen state, it doesn't matter that you ever were enlightened. If Jesus returns and you remain in that state, or if you die in that fallen state, in that state of death, there remains no more sacrifice. So you don't get to say, oh, but, but I did this way back then. Yeah, you did, but you fell from that. And what you fell from, you died in, therefore you step into the severity of God. So it just reminds us that every day actually matters. It reminds us that every day we should be considerate of walking with him. Now, if you're one of the ones who kind of wanders through the building and you've been gone for a while, let me just say this. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. And I hope 
that someone dragged you back. Because this is the command that is given to the church, James chapter 5 and verse 19. It's given to the church because the possibility of falling away actually exists. So this is the command to the church, James 5, 19. My brothers, if anyone among you, so he's talking about the church. Just make sure this is not something he's saying to the world. He's talking to the church. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, if we could reach back into our series on spirit, soul, body, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one that can destroy the body, but rather the one who can condemn the soul to death. So when it says you save that soul from death, he's not talking about you're saving their body from dying and ash going to ashes. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the soul. The soul is that inner self that lives forever, remember? So the inner self that lives forever, he's saying you save it from death. He's saying you save it from the vengeance or the severity that that soul would find itself in if it died in that state. You save it from death. Why? Because you went out and got them. It actually mattered to you when someone lived away from their faith so much that you saw their hurt, you saw their pain, and you brought them back. And here's, here's a truth. There are people who just, you know, they come in and they didn't really mean it and they tried it out or maybe they meant it at the beginning and they just figured, nah, I can't do this. And then there are people who they come in and they actually, somebody hurts their feelings. They actually, they get hurt by someone or, or something. Sometimes it's the preacher. Sometimes I offend somebody. Sometimes it's you. You offend somebody. Like, we offend people. We upset people. And people will title that, and they'll call it church hurt. And like, oh, it's because of church hurt. But I, like, I guess that's a real thing that you got hurt by somebody. But you don't quit the team just because somebody made you mad. So, like, I've heard people say, oh, church people are just so whatever. You know what? People are so whatever. Have you ever gone to your neighborhood association meeting? I'm just, no, like, for real. Anytime there's a gathering of people, you will find people that get on your nerves. Like, I went to one, one neighborhood association meeting in my entire life, and I, th I thought I liked my neighbors until I went to the meeting. <laughs> Truth. I'd drive by, I'd wave, they'd wave. I'm like, these people are great. This is the nicest neighborhood. I mean, it's awesome. You go to one neighborhood meeting, you're like, what is wrong with that guy at 1408? Right? So we're like, you know, us church people. No, it's just, it's just people. Remember that old country song? God is great. Beer is good. People are, I'm the only one that's ever heard any country music around here. Y'all are so good. I love y'all. I love y'all. Y'all just, y'all just bring me up. Y'all just bring me forward. Y'all just drag me from my place of carnality into your place of great spirituality. I thank you. I just, I do. I thank you. So awesome. God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy, right? Like even, even Nashville knows people are crazy. So let's not just blame it on church folks. So church people are crazy. People are crazy. But there are people, crazy people, who offend other people, and the people who they offend, they walk away, and they blame this person's behavior on the whole church. And they blame all of what God did on the actions of one person in the third row that took their seat. And I get it. 
Sometimes we're sensitive. But here's the thing, when somebody is offended, then you drag them back. Because here's the thing, their offense can lead to a falling away, and we do not want that for people. We, we want to bring them back if we can. So we reach into their lives and we have conversations, tough conversations, and we bring people back. And when we bring them back, we have the confidence that we save that sinner, their soul from death. That's a, that's a big deal. We see this in the life of Jesus and Peter. Um, Jesus was about to die on the cross. He was about to go through the horrific events of that passion. And it was time for he and his disciples to pray. And he took Peter, James, and John. And apparently, they weren't very good prayers. They apparently had not learned from the life of Jesus when he would tuck himself away and pray, when he would go to quiet places and pray, when it would just be him in the, on the mount and he would just pray. They apparently hadn't learned from him. And so Jesus says this to Peter, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. He says, Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is times in our spiritual walk where, quite frankly, our flesh is just weak. And because our flesh is weak, we can make some bad decisions. Even though our heart didn't want to make the bad decision, our flesh did make the bad decision. And that flesh that makes a bad decision can pull us in a direction that's actually walking away from the goodness of God, that's actually walking away from the gospel command. And so Jesus is giving Peter a warning. He's saying, hey, you need to watch and pray so that you don't enter into that temptation. Now, I would just like to say there's a difference in being tempted and entering into the temptation. I know sometimes, especially in the modern era, we like to, we like to sort of define ourselves or identify ourselves by our temptation. Because you are tempted by something doesn't make you that thing. You are not the thing that tempts you. You are not your temptation. This is an entering into is different than being tempted. And we need to understand that we are children of God. We are servants of God. We are in him. And as children of God, servants of God in him, there may be things that tempt us, but I'm not that temptation. I'm not identified by what tempts me. I'm identified by who he says I am. And he calls me a child of God, so that's what I call myself. And he says, watch and pray. So to his children, he says, watch and pray. Why? We need to be watchful. We need to be aware. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he says, watch. So I need to be watching for him. I know some people get nervous. I have people see, like, the devil behind every bush. I see, like, four devils behind every bush. <laughs> like, have you paid attention lately? There is deception everywhere. So we watch and pray. Don't just be aware of it. Like just being aware of what is there isn't going to keep you from falling into the, the temptation. He says watch and pray. There is a requirement of prayer that elevates the strength of the heart to say no to the temptation. Like the flesh has to be dealt with. Here's the thing, if you can't tell your flesh to calm down long enough to pray in obedience to the word, you aren't going to tell your flesh no when the devil shows up. So Jesus is telling Peter, here, I'm going to give you a strategy. I need you to learn how to put your flesh under in matters of prayer so that when the devil shows up, you don't fall into the temptation. 
But then he went on because he knew that Peter had not prayed at the level that was necessary to withstand the coming temptation. And so in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, what did Jesus know? Because sometimes people read that like Peter didn't have a choice. It was God's will that he denied Jesus. God made him deny him. It was all part of the plan. No, no, Jesus gave him a way of escape. He didn't follow the way of escape, which was to pray more. So then he gave him words of comfort because he said, you didn't pray. Here's the temptation. It's here. Here's your prayer that's here. The way of escape was to pray that you wouldn't be tempted. But he didn't pray. Jesus said you couldn't even pray for an hour. So his prayer life didn't match the temptation that was coming, even though through his prayer life, God had made a way so that he wouldn't be tempted beyond what he would be able to stand. But he didn't follow God's counsel in prayer. So now Jesus says, you're not strong enough to defeat this temptation. I gave you what you needed, but you weren't obedient. So now guess what's gonna happen? Because your prayer life is here, you're gonna fall. You're gonna deny me three times and I've prayed for you so that you don't feel the weight, the burden of that denial and you're gonna hear that rooster and when you hear that rooster, you're gonna know that I told you this was gonna happen but I've already prepared a way for you, Peter. So when you have turned, I'm just giving you news so you can turn again and I want you to come back and I want you to strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what he did. So when we see somebody that is struggling Can't we follow the demonstration of Jesus and go to them and encourage them and give them what they need to make their way back? Because the last thing we want to see is people who we love find their way out into this wilderness, this severity outside of the kindness of God. Because it's possible to get out there. And so... Hebrews here is giving us a warning shot so we understand very clearly that a life of faith actually matters because falling away can happen. Uh, we see it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, Paul says, to Timothy says, the Spirit expressly says. Now that phrase means this has like been said over and over and over. There's no denying this. This is coming. This is going to happen. Pay attention. The Spirit expressly says that in the later times, that some will fall away, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. Now that is poetic. The insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. And do we not see that today? Like, I'm not, this is what I'm not talking about, because sometimes I think this can be mis, 
misunderstood. I'm not talking about people and churches and preachers who love Jesus and are serving Jesus, and they might have this particular doctrine, maybe it's different than yours or whatever. I'm talking about people, and there are denominations. This is why the United Methodist Church right now is having a massive split, because one half of them decided that they would actually like to follow the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed, seared. Like, that's real. Like, that's real talk. It happened in the Presbyterian Church decades ago. You have the PCA and the PCUSA. You now have the UMC, and now you have the Global Methodist Church. You have a group of people in these denominations that are like, wait, we're drifting too far from the gospel. We have to correct. And the other group says, nope, we're going this way. We're going this way. What is that? It is a teaching, a doctrine of demons. Like, that's what it is. And when we don't call it out for what it is, this is what happens. Then we like want to patty cake with it and sort of embrace a little bit of it. Like, oh, well, they'll be okay. They won't be okay. The end is destruction. It's not okay. All right. Don't, we don't have a lot of that Methodist in the room, so I'll keep going. Um, it's always safe. I'm standing in our church. I'm not standing at them. Anyhow. Um, but no, he says, look, it is, this is going to happen. So pay attention. And so Hebrews is telling us, enlightened by all of the prophecies of what's going to happen in the later times, he's telling us it is possible to fall away, so be careful. Watch, pray, notice that this could be. And he compares it to sluggishness. And, and here's where, like, I'm just going to stand on a soapbox for a minute. Um, the contrast to a life of faith and patience is sluggishness. We are not to be sluggish, but we are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Not to be sluggish. Sluggishness is somebody who is not actually living according to the gospel of God. He says, you are serving the saints, and I'm telling you, keep serving them so that you can have full assurance of the hope that you have. Like this doing is imitating, is faith, is patience. Not doing is sluggishness. He's saying, don't be sluggish. We, in our generation, are starting to tiptoe to a conversation that is almost embracing sluggishness. It's not just in church. It's not just in school. It's not just in work. Like, it's in all things. Like, culture has decided it is going to promote sluggishness, and we're going to almost, almost demonize hard work. We're going to almost like, like the person who shows up to work anyhow, even though they had a long weekend and even though they're tired, we're almost going to demonize them and say, oh, you should have just stayed home and rested. Why? People were counting on them to be there. Their team needed them. I'm glad that they drank a coffee or a Coke and showed up. But, but the books, the podcast will say, you, you need to rest. You know, it's interesting that the gospel command is wake up, yet society is telling everybody to rest. The gospel says awake you, society saying just rest, just, just, take, just take it easy. We have an entire generation of us, we're taking it easy already. We don't need to take it more easy. No, like I'm for real. We, we've gotten to a place where because we don't, we don't want to embrace the depth of Scripture, that the shallowness of life is devastating to us. We don't, we, don't, we don't even have an idea of what suffering might look like. 
We have no idea what sacrifice might look like. And so when we have just the slightest, the slightest headwind, we like, we cave and crumble. All right, I, I thought this part was going to go well. So I decided to bring a little statistic in from the other side. So the, the, the CEO of Ford, he was complaining the other day about sluggishness. And he was, this is, this is like, I have no idea what his beliefs are, but this isn't in the gospel. This is just a CEO of a big company complaining. I don't know how you are, but I know me and my people group, we like complain about how much money stuff costs these days. Anybody else complain about how much money? Like, I have a family of six. Now, that's my choice. That's not anybody else's burden. That's my joy. But when we go out to eat, like, it's expensive. It's, like, really expensive. And because we, we chose for there to be six of us, like we can't drive, we can't drive a little, little car that just has four seats that gets 50 miles to the gallon. I mean, that'd be great. We just don't fit. And so the car's a little bigger, which burns more gas, which I'm sure is not great for the environment, but we do it anyhow. And gas is expensive. So I complain about how much stuff is. I don't know how you feel. I'm just, I'm giving you a foundation. Yes, I complain about the cost of things. Okay, so the CEO of Ford the other day, he's complaining about the state of work. And specifically what he's complaining about is cost. And he says, look, we have to hire 25% more engineers today to do the same work that used to get done years ago. Okay, that's a big number. But, but what that means is they should be able to have 16,000 engineers. Instead, they have to have 20,000 engineers. So when you look at the numbers, the engineers that they hire somewhere in the $119,000 a year, so 4,000 engineers more at $119,000 a year is $472 million more that Ford has to pay to get the same thing done that used to get done. Now, for those of us who like to complain about the cost of things, what that means is cars are going to cost more. And for the other people like complain about not making enough money, here's the other thing it means. You're going to make less. Because if you only had 16,000 employees and you decided to give all of those benefits to the employee, each one would make $30,000 more than they make today. But they can't because they have to have 25% more people. Now, how economics usually works is the people here might make a little bit more if you saved, and then the people buying might save a little bit more, so they kind of split the difference. But here's the moral of the story. If you didn't have sluggishness at Ford, the engineers could make a little more, and we could pay a little less for cars. That sounds like a pretty good deal. But that's not what we have. And so there are consequences to sluggishness. There are consequences to too many people resting too much. That's just at Ford. What about the kingdom? There are more people on the planet today than have ever been on the planet. More. The church has more work to do than it has ever done. Ever. If we, the church, today 
are doing less than the church did yesterday. That's not things costing more. That's more people going to hell. There are consequences for us being convinced to do less. There are consequences for us being convinced to sit on the couch and just take a break because you're tired this Sunday. There are consequences to this. Like people's lives are in the balance. I'm not talking about economics. I'm not talking about cheaper cars. I'm not talking about making more money. I'm talking about people actually going to hell. I'm talking about families raising children to go to hell because somebody didn't find the parent to get the parents saved that they might raise those children in the house of God. I'm talking about a time that is a latter time today where we have been called to wake up and do more, but instead we're writing books and reading books and listening to podcasts telling us to, oh, take a break. Take a break. You need some rest. We don't need rest. Rest isn't what we need. This is what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, go take a nap if you're tired. He said, come to me. That's doing something. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to run to him. I'm going to be in his presence. And when I come to him, when I do something, he just says, oh, Here's rest. You wanted rest? Here, have it. Proverbs gives us, I love this. I say this all the time to my kids. They're sick of hearing it. A little rest, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Poverty comes on you like a thief. Like a thief. What is the implication? Get up! Awake you who sleepest. Okay, so sluggishness, sluggishness is not the path forward. It's not the path forward. You don't need more rest. Here's what we do need more of, faith. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I know we, we sometimes get cranky about the whole influencer culture. I think influencer culture is kind of cool. I think that somebody can catalog their life and put it out there for people to watch is pretty neat. What I don't think is neat is when we're watching the wrong people. But I think somebody who lives by faith, somebody who's got a little hustle in them, somebody who loves their spouse, somebody who loves their kids, like to be able to watch them and, and imitate them or watch them and be encouraged by them to be a better person than who I am. Like, I'm into that. Like, I, I like that. I think that's a great idea. And what the problem is, is when we watch the people who are leading us to death. Now, that's not helpful. And let me just say this. If you're one of these, you spend a lot of time online and you like, a, like, you like watching a lot of different people. Let me just say this to you. Here's what would help you a lot. If you'd figure yourself out first and then watch and imitate the people who will help you be the better you. But if you don't know you, if you don't understand who God has called you to be and you're watching everybody else, they're going to pull you in a hundred different directions. You need to know who you are. And when you know who you are, there are people to imitate. But it starts with you in the gospel. It starts with you understanding the callings and the gifts that God has given you. And when you have an embrace of those, I promise you, there will be people in your pathway whom God will set for you to imitate so that by their faith and patience, it's an inspiring, it's an inspiring to you. And then guess what you get to do? Inherit the promise. Because what we don't do on Sunday morning is just get a bunch of people together to just tell you life's going to be awesome. You know what? If you're going on a wrong, wrong road, life isn't going to be awesome. I want to wake us all up so that we can get on the pathway that God wants us on so we reach that place where God wants us to reach. 
So through faith and patience. Let's just talk about faith for a minute. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is assurance and conviction. If you're a King James person, the language might be a little easier. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What that means is this. When you have something that you believe, it's just hope until you do something that confirms what you believe. When a hope is there and it's a belief because you confirm it, this over here on the doing side is conviction. This on the belief side is assurance. If all you have is assurance with no conviction, it's not faith. If all you have is conviction with no assurance, it's not faith either. And so what that means is if, this, if I'm just doing good things because my neighbor does good things or I was told, look, if you do this, it'll work out well for you and I'm just doing a good thing, that's just a good thing. It's called dead works. Why is it dead works? Because my hope and my confidence is in the thing that I'm doing. Now, if what I'm doing is based on what I believe, then the belief coupled to the doing is what we call faith. But is that just believing anything? No, it's believing what God has said. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the believing has to be based on the gospel. The gospel is the boundary. If I believe what the gospel says and then my conviction or my evidence is a lifestyle that confirms what I believe, that lifestyle with this belief is what the gospel calls faith. Why? Because the gospel was preached, the word of God came, I believed it, and that belief influenced, it transformed my behavior so that my convictions we're in alignment with my assurance. Faith is always what you believe and what you do. Always. It's always belief and action. Both of those together is faith. Now, without faith, Hebrews 11:6, it's actually impossible to please God. For he who draws near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is why it's not just doing good things, but it's believing the right things and the right things that you believe influence the things that you do. And this doing coupled with the believing is faith. I want to say that over and over and over and over again because I want you to understand that. There is a generation that likes to think we just need to believe the right things. Absolutely not. We need to do the right things based on the right beliefs. That's faith. In the absence of the doing, it's just hope. But we're talking about faith. Faith is a lifestyle coupled to a belief, and the belief is based on the gospel. It's not just anything you decide to be. See, the, the boundary of faith is the grace of God. I guess we should talk about that for a minute. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. The grace is the word of God that he gives to you. You can't believe anything and do it and it be faith if it didn't begin with the grace of God. Grace comes first. Grace is God all by himself. It's God just deciding. I know I've heard some people say, well, God can't do anything that we don't ask him to do. Nonsense. Have you read Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who asked him to do that? Who asked him? Nobody. On the sixth day, God made man. God made woman. Who asked him to do that? Nobody. 
So I don't like to think that God can do nothing that I don't ask him to do. That's what grace is, unearned, undeserved. I did nothing for it. God all by himself just made a decision, and he just said, you know what? I'm going to do something. So here's what I'm going to do. If you want it, access it by faith. But you had nothing to do with grace. This is the reason why in the New Testament, faith is mentioned two times more, twice as many times as the word grace. Why? Because the faith is the part that you do. That's the part you should fully understand, you should fully embrace. The grace part is God, God all by himself, it's all up to him. You don't actually get to decide how you got saved. He decided. You don't get to decide when Jesus is coming back. He decides. You didn't get to decide what generation you'd be born in. God decided that. God, God made all, you, you didn't get to decide how good you were going to look, God did. You didn't get to decide how smart you are, God did. You didn't get to decide what your temperament would be, God did. All you get to decide is what you're going to do with the IQ he gave you, what you're going to do with the temperament he gave you, what you're going to do in the family where he put you, what you're going to do in the generation where he placed you. That's what you get to decide, but everything else God decided all by God's self. That's grace. But the faith part matters. Because it connects you to the grace of God or it rejects the grace of God. And so we have through faith and patience. So let's talk about one person before we get out of here. And it's Abel. Um, it's the first one mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll be honest, uh, I'm not real excited by Abel. When I think of people that I want to imitate their faith and their patience, Abel is not who comes to mind. Abraham maybe, maybe Noah, but not Abel. I mean, if you don't know the story of Abel, here's the story of Abel. Abel gave God what God asked for. Abel's brother got mad and killed Abel, so Abel died early. That's the story. Now, that doesn't sound very inspiring. At least it doesn't to me. But here's what's fascinating is when you just dig a little bit deeper and you understand what's there. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it said, By faith, Abel offered to God a sacrifice that was more pleasing than Cain. He gave God what God was asking for. And he said through that sacrifice, he was commended as righteous. God commending him because he accepted his gift. And now through his faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. That's where we see this patience part pushed in. But let's first understand how he lived by faith. How is it that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. So Cain and Abel, we see him in Genesis chapter 4. Abel was somebody who raised um, livestock. And his brother Cain, he um, cultivated crops. Cain was the older brother. Abel was the younger brother. Uh, Cain cultivated crops. Abel was working in the field and raising livestock. And so Abel would bring the firstborn of his livestock and he would give it to God. Cain would take the fruit of his harvest and he would give that to God. Now, I don't know a whole lot about, actually, I don't know anything about raising livestock and I don't know anything about cultivating a garden. Like, I can barely keep my grass green. <laughs> but I will say this, I have a dog and I do have to keep the yard clean and I, I think it's actually easier to raise the dog than mow the yard. I do. So I'm thinking Abel had the easier life. I, this, is just, this is just very plain, simple, just me guesstimating. But it looks like cultivating crops is hard, like really hard. And so Cain did hard work, and he brought that hard work to God, and he said, here. And God didn't receive it. And that doesn't seem like that's very nice. It doesn't seem very fair. 
But if I back up to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, we see this moment where Adam and Eve had placed fig leaves all over themselves to cover themselves up so they could come into the presence of God. And then God said, yeah, the fig leaves aren't enough. And in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and made for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Well, there's only one way to get garments of skins from an animal. You sacrifice the animal. And Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then God said, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. When did God ever, ever give an animal on the altar to make atonement for their sins? Only back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. So in Genesis 3.21, God demonstrates this is what I want from you so that you can stand in my presence. And it wasn't favoring one child over another child. It was the grace of God before either child had ever been born. And God said, you want to be in my presence. Here's how the rules work. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or atonement of sins. So if you want to come into my presence, you can, but you have to do it this way. And so Cain decided, I want to be in the presence of God, but I don't want to do it God's way. Abel said, I want to be in the presence of God. but I'm going to do it God's way. What is that? That's a life of faith. This is why you can walk into the house of God 45 minutes early. You can wear a three-piece suit. You can be the best-looking person in the room. And when the worship starts, if you stand with your hands at your side, guess what? You're not worshiping God, and God doesn't accept your three-piece suit, and he doesn't accept that you came in 45 minutes early. But you might have come in late. You might have come in two minutes early. Your hair might be a mess. You might have barely gotten those kids in that nursery. But you stand up into the presence of God, and you lift your hands in his presence. Let me tell you something. God, all of a sudden, will accept your praise. He will accept your worship. He'll say, that's what I asked for. You came in a three-piece suit. Good for you. Your hands are by your side. You came in with nothing, but your hands are up. I'll take it all day long. Why? Because he said, this is what I want. I want a sacrifice of praise. And so when we bring God what God wants, God accepts us. That's what we call faith. And that is what Abel demonstrated. So his life is inspiring. But that doesn't sound like patience to me. I mean, it's faith. Patience? What's patient about that? Oh, Hebrews eleven thirty nine says all these died. Everybody we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, they're all dead, every single one of them. So these all died, though by faith, through their faith, they were commended. Yet they did not receive the promise. Why? Since God provided for us a better way that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So Abel, though he lived by faith, he gave sacrifice under an old system that was just good enough that upon his death, he would go to a place that was called Abraham's bosom later or paradise at the time, which had a chasm between it and the torment of what we know as hell. But Abel was in this part, but he wasn't in heaven in the presence of God. Jesus would die, count them, 4,000 years later. Now, I've never died before. So I don't know what it's like to be in a place other than here for two days, three days, four days. But if you go into the book of Revelation and you open the fifth seal, there's a group of people under the throne room of God. 
And they say, how long are we going to be here before you avenge what was done to us? So I think they have some understanding of time. So Abel, though he lived by faith, he could not be in the presence of God in that place, but he had a promise. There was a promise that was made to his mom and made to his dad that there would be a day when the Son of God would come and he would crush the head of Satan. And when the head of Satan would be crushed, suddenly everything would change and we could be in the presence of God. But Abel died before that ever happened. And God all by himself said there will be a moment when the fullness of time comes, when the sacrificial system that I began in Genesis 3, I'm going to bring it to a completion with the sacrifice of my own son. And when the sacrifice of my own son happens, everybody who died before this moment, who's just in a place of waiting, will be raised up in a moment and will be in my presence. And Abel knew the promise. And year 1,000, he waited. And year 2,000, he waited. I don't know how you feel, but if I wait three minutes, it's too long. See, it does us good sometimes to just get into the depth of the gospel because it makes a lot of what we see just silly. It makes a lot of what we see just simple. When I recognize that a man waited in death for thousands of years for God to do what he promised to do, I think I can wait a month. I think I can wait a year. I think I can wait five years. I think I can wait 10 years. I think I can wait on God because when I'm walking by faith and I'm doing all I know to do and I'm not seeing it, yet, then I just have to know that it's not time yet. And if it's not time yet, I will wait. I'll wait. Because I know that through faith and patience, I will inherit the promise of God. So what are you waiting on? Just wait. Because God's moving. Just wait, just wait.